We're in Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Our Lord, we've read the text of your word. It's inspired, it's authoritative, and now, Lord, we have the chance to walk through it, to see Jesus, to be empowered by your spirit for service, to be sanctified by him, to be brought to faith in him, to have faith renewed in him, and so many other miraculous things this morning. So, Lord, we're yours. We submit in Jesus' name. Amen. In my humble opinion, which is probably not a confidence-building way to start a sermon, but I said it on purpose. So in my humble opinion, one of the most obnoxious occurrences in my recent memory was the worldwide obsession over the birth of Prince George in July of 2013. In case you don't remember that, let me just refresh you with some stats and some facts. None of these are mine. They're footnoted, in case you don't believe me. I'm not making them up. This is reflection. Analysis of analytics from 100,000 news sites found that 5% of news consumption globally was related to coverage of the royal birth on Monday, the 22nd of July, 2013, the day Prince George was born. The research found that 9% of news consumed in the UK was of content relating to the new prince. The figure was 6% in the US, 5% in Australia, 5% in France, 2% in Germany, and 1% in Spain. During the hour the birth was announced, so 8 to 9 p.m. Monday, 12% of all content read or watched around the world related to the new arrival. At 9 p.m. London time, consumption of royal baby content in the U.S. overtook that of the U.K. Out of total news consumed, 13% was about the royal baby in the U.S. and 12.6% in the U.K. And if that's not obnoxious enough, here's some more. I'm studying a couple U.K. news outlets. The Guardian's Royal Baby live blog also saw an historic peak of 18,000 page views per minute. The Sun said, Our big success story was our baby monitor, which was a camera fixed on the door of the Lindo Wing over the last week. That's the maternity ward of St. Mary's Hospital in London where Prince George was born. 
Another news outlet reported that they live-streamed from outside the Lindo wing directly onto its YouTube channels, and the stream had a total view time of 8,372 hours and an average duration of six hours, a growth of 1,696% month-on-month. So what was all the obsession about? One journalist has this reflection that I think is great. She says, of course, it's exciting when a new heir to the throne is born. You don't have to be an ardent monarchist with a cabinet full of commemorative teacups to feel that. You just have to be someone with a passing interest in history who isn't an emotionally stunted shell of empty cynicism. I guess I'm an emotionally stunted shell of empty cynicism. But then she shows the other side. From mild interest because your future king is born to obsession. It's lovely that a young couple have given birth to their first son. And it's mildly interesting that this son will one day be king. But that's about as far as it goes. I could deal with one day of fervent media coverage. But when three days after the birth, the tabloid front pages are taken up with a full-sized photo of Prince George's first royal wave, which was probably a twitch. And the rest of the paper is saturated by comment pieces on whether or not Kate is going to breastfeed or how Mums Netters, which is a popular parenting website in the UK, how Mums Netters feel about the display of her mummy tummy. Or advice on where to buy your very own polka dot postpartum fashion attire. I begin to feel it's a tiny bit too much. It's the equivalent of those well-meaning Facebook acquaintances who bombard your news feeds with pictures of their baby scans and updates about potty training. But played out on a global scale. Meaning, day in and day out for the better part of a month, photographers from around the world perched on stepladders and pointed their long-lens cameras at the brown doors where the Duke and the Duchess would eventually step out with their baby. Tourists popped up by the hospital to see what the great Kate Waite fuss was all about, while some Uber fans camped out overnight. Many royal enthusiasts brought presents, and approximately $745,000 was wagered on what the little prince's name would be. Admittedly, I've probably gone too far already this morning with stats and facts, but my point in unloading all of that on you is, number one, because it's recent enough that it's still probably relatively fresh in your memory, and number two, to illustrate as we're setting ourselves up for our text this morning that this is how our world celebrates the birth of royalty. In this case, a prince that isn't even next in line to the throne. So imagine what would happen if a child was born who would be the king of the world from birth. 
Just imagine the frenzy around him and the adoration he would receive. No maternity wing would be prepared for the attention he would receive. The mobs of people camping out, the gifts that would be brought, the journalists that would be gathered just waiting for the news that the king had been born so that they could chronicle every bit of information that they could gather, every sneeze, every cough, every coo, every nap. No city block, no law enforcement team could restrain the chaos of the people assembling outside the hospital doors, camping out night after night, placing wages on his birth date and time and place. If the former is how the world responds with nine months' notice when a prince is born who is third in line to a localized throne that he himself will one day inevitably vacate to another upon his death, there is no telling what would happen if one was born who is heir to the throne of the world from his birth, who would never vacate that throne to another, not in anyone's lifetime born at the time of his birth, nor in anyone's lifetime who would be born for an infinite amount of generations after. Prince George will be a temporary fixture on the British throne, and most people who obsessed over his birth will never even see his blip on the radar rule. And those who do live to see his rule will become some of, some of his greatest critics and opponents anyway. And just so you know, I have nothing against Prince George this morning. He's just the obvious illustration because his birth is fresh in our memories. But the same is true about his father, Prince William. His father, Prince Charles, it's true of Trump, it's true of Obama, it's true of Bush, it's true of Clinton, all the way back. It's true of Caesar, it's true of Alexander the Great, it's true of Nebuchadnezzar, it's true of all the kings of Israel, it's true of Moses, Abraham, Noah, and Adam. But man, oh man. What if a king was born who would immediately and eternally rule the world with promises of perfect peace and justice and righteousness and follow through on every one of them forever. It's all going here. If royalty like Prince George solicits the temporary, self-centered, shallow adoration of the world. Such a king, as I've described, would solicit nothing less than the sincere, wholehearted, joyful, eternal worship of the world. Am I right? You know where I'm going with this. What I've just presented is not just an imaginary ideal, but it is a reality. And the story that we've been walking through in Scripture tells this incredible story. And the scene this week in Luke chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7 zeroes in on this magnificent event, the birth of the king. Everything else so far has been built up. 
And when I say everything else so far has been built up, I mean not only in this short sermon series that we happen to be doing this particular year for Advent, but everything has been built up. As in every moment of history, from the first words, let there be light, to Luke chapter 2 and verse 5. Everything has been built up. Everything has been anticipation. Everything has been preparation. Every word spoken by God until the word became flesh. Every created person after God's image until the exact imprint came. Every institution as a picture and a shadow of the greater reality to come in Jesus. All of it literally from day one has been Build up, and in our text this morning, the king has finally come, and he's begun the fulfillment of all the promises. And yet, the scene of this royal birth in our text is so much different than the Lindo wing of St. Mary's Hospital in London in July of 2013, isn't it? There are no scribes recording the details. Contrary to popular belief, there are no wise men from the East just yet to present the newborn king with their gifts. Our best guess is place them there anywhere up to a year after the birth of Jesus. But I do love how Luke may be very brief in his record of Jesus' birth, but he is so careful to back us up, to take in the larger panoramic of the scene before he walks us up to the feeding trough where Jesus was laid. And while the scene starts out big and wide in verses 1 through 3, the background progressively fades and the lens progressively narrows in verses 4 through 5 before all the world around him goes dark. In verses 6 through 7, and the spotlight is shining where it was always meant to shine, right there. I'm the Savior of the world, the King of the universe born. That's all we want to do this morning is back up with Luke. Take in the scenery and then be led by the Spirit's kind and omnipresent hand right up to the feeding trough so that we can bow down, not just to look in with mild interest, but to worship. Which is the fitting, joyful response to this royal birth. Verses 1 through 3 are the furthest step back. And Luke gives us three points of reference here. The first of them is John the Baptist. In those days. Locates us there because John was born back in chapter 1 verse 57. And even though verse 80 of chapter 1 basically summarizes the next 30 years of John's life until we run into him again in the desert at the Jordan as he's preaching, as he's baptizing, John is still very much an infant here. 
Remember, John is only six months older than Jesus, so don't get distracted by verse 80. John has been born, and he's still a baby. And in those days, we have a second point of reference. Not only Caesar Augustus, who is the Roman emperor, but his decree that the world should be registered. The third marker is verse 2. And it creates a bit of controversy because historians mark the governing rule of Quirinius in Syria years after Jesus' birth. But Luke seems to locate Caesar's decree for a census during the early days of John the Baptist's life and late in the game of Mary's pregnancy with Jesus and during the rule of Quirinius in Syria. It may seem like a minor detail, I know, and in the big scheme of things it is, but you and I well know that it's often these minor details that are used by many to undermine the accuracy of the Bible and the authority of the Bible. So if people can undermine something like the historical record, the chronology, they're not far from undermining the miracle. And the solution is not to change the inspired text in an effort to cover up a mistake, but to clarify our translation of the text so that that the emphasis falls where it ought. And I am very thankful that both the ESV and the CSB include the clarification in a footnote so that I'm not standing on my own authority here. So if you have the footnote, you'll find the clarification that resolves the issue right there in your copy of the scriptures. Where Luke is ultimately saying this was the registration before Quirinius was governor. And he includes Quirinius here because history records a census that was decreed during the time of his short rule that sparked a rebellion that was so significant... To quote David Garland, that it sowed the seeds for the zealot movement that burgeoned into a pattern of sedition and conflict and culminated in the revolt against Rome and Jerusalem's ultimate destruction. He goes on to say, the censuses and taxation under Herod, hated as they were, at least appeared to be under the auspices of a Jewish state, even though they were in the Roman style. The census under Quirinius, however, was the first taste of direct, immediate rule by the Romans. So I think what Luke is doing as he sets the scene for the birth of Jesus here is he's setting the boundaries on both sides. On the one side is the birth of John the Baptist. He's recently been born. He is the forerunner to the hope of Israel coming in human flesh. On the other side in this is the census under Quirinius, which is a helpful marker Not only because it was so well known, but brothers and sisters, it served as a clear reminder that at the time that the hope and Savior and King of Israel was born into this world, that the people he came to save and free and rule over remained in an exile, even while they occupied their own land. 
And it pictured the spiritual exile of the relationship with God that Jesus came to reconcile. And I love the connection that is made by a number of people I read this week who take it even a step further and say these incredible words. Luke's mention of the infamous census sets up the opposition between the proud, formidable empire of Caesar and God's eternal reign. The child born in Bethlehem to parents subjected to Roman tyranny will ultimately challenge the existing political order and create an astonishing reversal of authority and power, not through violence, but through obedience to God and the giving of his life. So the broad scene is John the Baptist born. Caesar Augustus ruling the world, exercising his authority to, a, to decree a census that would require people to return to their original home at some time during the enrollment year. So, I hate to break it to you, but the scene is most likely not as rushed as tradition tells it. Or as one of my favorite Christmas movies that we watch every year, The Nativity Story, tells it. Soldiers showing up out of the blue, announcing this decree... And then a mad scramble to make it back on time. Luke is simply setting the larger scene and setting up the larger conflict. During the time between John's birth and Quirinius's infamous census, when God's people were yet in exile under Roman rule in their own land and yet banished ultimately from the paradise of the garden, Awaiting the coming of the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, during that time of exile and anticipation. Caesar Augustus, as ruler of the most powerful empire in the world, issued one of many decrees for a census of his own. And this particular census is most interesting, as Luke continues, because it coincides with the coming of a king that is far greater than any Caesar. Whose coming was according to promise... And not just coincided with it, but directly impacted the manner in which he would come. Which is where Luke goes in verses 4 through 5. Verses 4 through 5 give us five places. So Luke has begun to set this scene by identifying the main players. One prophet of God that was raised up to prepare the way for the Messiah or to make way for the king by repenting of sin and believing in the gospel that since it was first spoken in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 foretold of his coming. And he's identified two world rulers whose exercise of power has a direct bearing on this birth. But now the lens narrows. The camera zooms from a prophet of God, the Roman emperor, and the governor of Syria to one humble, betrothed couple in Nazareth of Galilee. And what's really striking here is how detailed Luke gets. Let me show you what I mean. 
He could have easily gutted the innards of verse 4. And the sentence would still make perfect sense. So he says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I can see my seminary professors marking my paper, if this was my writing, and saying to me, which they've often said to me, too wordy. Got the middle, and the sentence still will make perfect sense. It's been the story of my life. Too wordy. Many of you probably think on Sunday mornings, too wordy. Cut it in half. So Luke could have just as easily said, couldn't he have? And Joseph also went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So is he just being wordy here? Or is there purpose and meaning to the detail? Because he doesn't even give us the detail in verse 1 when he mentions the emperor. He doesn't say, in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, that all the world should be registered. But in reference to this unknown, humble, betrothed man and woman, he identifies Nazareth of Galilee as the place where he and Mary were living at the time of the decree. And then he not only identifies Bethlehem as the place of Joseph's origin, but he feels the need on both ends to mention David. On the one end, because of David's association with Bethlehem. On the other hand, because Joseph was a direct descendant of David, as Matthew's genealogy bears out. Joseph was a descendant of David through King Solomon. And Matthew's purpose in giving us that genealogy is stated at the very end of it. It was because Joseph was the husband of Mary, and from Mary, Jesus was born. So as noble as Joseph was, Luke's purpose in telling us this detail about him is the same as Matthew's purpose in telling us Joseph's lineage. And that is because of the child that Joseph's wife was carrying in her womb. Made clear by both writers, conceived not naturally through their premature, what would have been sinful union, but supernaturally by the power of the Spirit. And as Galatians tells us, when the fullness of time had come, the Father sent forth His Son through the work of the Spirit to be born into this world to accomplish His work of redemption, to rise from the dead, to return in glory to His throne. And both Matthew and Luke are extremely, unmistakably careful to connect Mary and Joseph through betrothal and marriage and Joseph and Jesus, not through blood, but through adoption. So to, to jump the gun a little bit here, when Luke goes on to say that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, 
He includes the extra detail not only to assure us once again that Mary was in fact the virgin who would conceive in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, but the word firstborn communicates so much else. It communicates first and foremost God's claim on him. So think back to Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2 when God said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So it it communicates God's claim. But it also communicates the right of inheritance. Not just of Joseph and Mary's stuff, but of the throne. So I trust now it starts to make sense why Luke slows down, zooms in, and floods with detail here. He mentions David twice, not just because it's cool detail that they're from the same place, like when I'm driving down the streets of Wisconsin, and I see a Michigan license plate, and if I recognize the car dealership that the car was born from, I want to tell them to roll down their window and say, I'm from there too! I'm from Michigan! He's setting up this child that's about to be born as the king of Israel, whose reign over the universe, as Isaiah 9 tells us, is from everlasting. But it's even more than that. Why the detail of Judea? which was the territory assigned to the tribe of Judah after Joshua led Israel across the Jordan. My answer is not only because it's a territory in which Bethlehem was located, but it's a tribal marker as well. Jesus was not only a descendant of David through both Joseph by adoption and Mary through blood, but backing up even further, because he was a descendant of David, he was also a descendant of Judah, of whom Jacob prophesied in Genesis 49, not only that his brothers would praise him, but that kings would be born through him who would rule over the tribes. There's the text. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And the scepter shall not depart from you, nor the ruler's staff from between your feet, until tribute comes to you, or as you likely have contained in a footnote, until he comes to whom it belongs, or until Shiloh comes, which is the word Behind the meaning, he to whom it belongs. But look at what's attributed to him in that text. Praise, obedience, unending rule. It's the same thing looking forward that was promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a throne for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Luke is announcing by pen as John the Baptist announced 
and the rest of the prophets before him prophesied that the baby who would be born of a virgin from the lineage of David, from the tribe of Judah, would be this long-awaited king. And so, so here's what's really interesting to me. When I throw out the words to you, city of David, what's your first thought? Probably not Bethlehem, is it? What would it be? Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the place where Judah's kings are born. Generation after generation. So why does Luke call Bethlehem the city of David? Let me remind us that before David and his sons became kings over Israel in Jerusalem, David was a shepherd boy from where? Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And it was to Bethlehem that God sent Samuel to anoint David king. And this is no insignificant detail, brothers and sisters. It feeds Luke's story of setting up Jesus as the king of kings, the heir to the throne, whose reign would never end in contrast to the rulers of this world, Caesar, Quirinius, any of the kings of Israel and Judah. David Garland gripped me by saying that there is here an intended contrast with Jesus coming from Bethlehem to rule Israel as opposed to the wicked kings who came from Jerusalem, the seat of Israel's political power. And it foretells that this king's coming to be a was not to be a powerful politician exercising his authority, but a humble, faithful king exercising his power to save. His power to rule is felt since the beginning of time, and it will be felt forever in truth and righteousness and justice toward those who are the subjects of his kingdom through faith in his saving work. But here, the king has stepped off his eternal throne. Don't mistake, not to cease ruling for even a moment but to make his rule known with saving grace in his death and resurrection from the dead. As Gavin Ortland recently said in a Gospel Coalition post, the incarnation is an addition, not a subtraction. That is, the Son of God does not shrink down to a tiny embryo in Mary's womb, leaving his divine majesty behind him. Rather, he comes to us while remaining as he is. And I'm adding to the end of that, including king. And when Caesar Augustus displays his power to call for a census that required Joseph, along with Mary, his betrothed bride, and the son she was carrying in her womb, to return to his homeland to be registered so that he could pay taxes to the king to feed the power of his empire, do not miss it, brothers and sisters. It was, as Proverbs says, it is always that that king's heart was in the hand of the sovereign Lord in the womb of his mother at the word of his father through the power of his spirit being turned precisely where the triune God willed the true king to be born. 
That's what was taking place in this census. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me the king. One is to be, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And that's exactly what happens in verses 6 through 7. The king is born. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Those, those are, some of those are my words. Not before, not on the journey, not after they left. The king was right there where he belonged by his father's own decree. So while in Bethlehem the fullness of time came, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. There is... So much to be said about that detail that once again might help clarify the way tradition has passed down the story. But I'm going to lean on David Garland one last time when he's set to simply say this. The fiction of a heartless innkeeper who turns them away is not only a fantasy, it leads away from the point. Perhaps I'll illustrate, illustrate it this way. It leads away from the point in much the same way that Mel Gibson's focus on the physical sufferings of Jesus in the passion of the, of the Christ, while very real, threatens to lead away from the greater point. Namely, that he came to die, to atone for sin, to inaugurate the new covenant, to reconcile all who would believe to God. And here the focus is not on the trial and the tribulation that Joseph and Mary endured leading up to the birth of Jesus. The focus is on the birth of Jesus, brothers and sisters. He's finally here. All the buildup, all the waiting, all the promises, all the hope of Israel, generation after generation, this is the outlet. This was the beginning of the fulfillment in the birth of this child, born of this virgin, this son of David, this heir to the throne, this seed of the woman, the Savior of the world has finally come to lead His people out of exile forever, never to return. The focus of this text and every other birth text is not on the chaos of any surrounding scene and Jesus laying in a manger in that setting. The focus in every text is not on the surroundings. It's on the manger. The camera's looking in. The Spirit is allowing us to look in with such clarity that no 21st century camera lens or journalist could ever capture in the birth scene of modern royalty. And our glimpse at this royal son is clearer because the scene has been being set from eternity, not merely nine months, with the design that our response looking in once again this morning would not be sweet, sentimental, shallow, self-centered, temporary affection until he takes the throne and undermines your agenda, but wholehearted, joyful, unending worship. Because his reign will never end, and his agenda is and will always be for his glory for, and for your greatest good. Not one or the other, but both and. Jesus 
came to die to atone for your sin and to satisfy his father's just wrath against you. He rose to conquer death and to justify you. He ascended back to heaven to return to his father, to reign as king from his right hand and to serve as our great high priest and mediator. He sent his spirit to fill and empower and keep his people faithfully to the end. And he's coming again to claim you and to keep you forever if he is your savior so what is our response this morning it is nothing more and nothing less than oh come let us adore him oh come let us adore him but not just adore him as we adore modern royalty being born just because they're babies. Brothers and sisters, oh, worship this king. All glorious above, oh, gratefully sing his power and his love. Let's pray. Father, it never gets old. It never gets old. The gospel story from eternity. You, in your sovereign grace, sending your Son in his sovereign faithfulness to die to atone for our sins. You declaring your satisfaction by raising him from the dead. Him returning to your right hand where he rules and reigns and sending his spirit to fill us. Keep us. Empower us. Oh, Lord, you alone are a God to be worshipped. And Holy Spirit, my prayer is this morning that you would solicit that in our hearts once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.